I invite you to turn today to John chapter 5. My wife asked me if I was going to preach a New Year's message. I said, no, I'm going back to John. Um, I really enjoyed, I hope that, I hope it enjoyed, you enjoyed our Advent series, but I get, I kind of, when I get out of, out of the rhythm of what we've been studying, I get anxious to go back and study it some more. Uh, I just enjoy the way um, as you begin to, as you study the scriptures as a whole and, and see how they flow together, how we see these things. And, and so that's what we've been doing in John's gospel. We've been working through this theme, life in Jesus, the son of God. That's why John wrote his gospel. He wrote his gospel as stated in John chapter 20 to, to show that, 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 that who Jesus is, the son of God, that we might believe and that believing in him, we might have life in his name. And so all throughout the book of John, we see these different um, signs that Jesus does. We see the different things that Jesus teaches. We see the different people Jesus interacts with. And they all point us back to this theme that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the word incarnate. He is God in flesh. He is the son of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the lamb of God given to take away the sin of the world. And so on New Year's Day, I can think of no better theme than to talk about than Jesus Christ. So we're going to go back today to John chapter 5. And very interesting here, in these first 15 verses, we're going to see in the life of a man here a failure to believe. Not just in the life of this man, but we'll also see going forward in the lives of others. Because Jesus' interactions with people don't always garner their belief. We have to make this choice whether or not we're going to believe in him or not. The grace of God is extended to us. The grace of God calls to us and convicts our sin. But that does not absolve man of his response to Jesus. We see here in John chapter 5... A man who experiences the overwhelming grace of God in his life and his response to these things and others' response to them. If you'll read with me here in John 5, look at verses 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your own bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Send no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus 
who had made him well. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word for a few minutes today. Thank you for the freedom we have in this country to study the word of God, to preach it, to proclaim it. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us not take that for granted, but that you would impress upon us what a gift we have been given in that regard. And Lord, would you have the freedom today to do your mighty work in our hearts and our lives? Would you open up our minds, open up our hearts today and show us things in our lives that we have squirreled away, that we have held on to, that we think nobody else needs to know or, 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 or maybe we've, we've convinced ourselves these things aren't that bad. Lord, you know better and you want to do a great and mighty work in us today. You want to call some who may be here today who don't know your Savior to salvation. You want to do the work in the lives of Christians to draw them to yourself, to help them eradicate more sin out of their lives. And Lord, we just pray that you would have freedom to do that today. That you would meet with us. We would learn from you and your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've said earlier in the service, today is New Year's Day. It's a day of what many consider to be fresh starts. And even though last year you didn't make it through half of January before you ditched that daily planner and the 15 colors of pens that you had to stay organized, you're going to make it this year. There's a reason that New Year's resolutions are a thing. Because a lot of people love the idea of a, of a fresh start, of a chance to do something new. However... There are also many in this life who have experienced disappointment and discouragement time after time, and, and the feeling of hopelessness begins to settle in to their hearts and their lives. And they cannot fathom the idea of starting over or seeing an incredible change because, well, surely it's not going to happen. It never does. In the pericope before us today, Jesus encounters a man who has experienced tremendous hardship in his life. And he allows these things to hinder his belief in Jesus, even when he personally experiences the grace of God through Jesus in his life. As we said in the beginning, the Gospel of John is consumed with showing us Jesus is God and worthy of our trust and our belief. And he brings us, John brings us to the point of a choice with each passing instance recorded in the life of Jesus. But whether you believe in Jesus or not, Jesus is still God. And if you do believe, how you act on this belief communicates what God is doing or not doing in your heart. And what we see in this passage before us today is Jesus' power is not limited by man's rules, is not relegated to only those who believe, and calls for our trust and obedience. What you're going to see in this passage is, is a shift in the Gospel of John. There's a very important verse here and a very important thing that happens that begins to shift the tenor of some of the interactions that Jesus has. And we'll talk about that when we get to it and see that Jesus isn't limited by regulations and rules that man put up because Jesus is God. But we also see that the power of Jesus isn't relegated to the lives of those who, who believe in him. In fact, you see here a man who does not believe in Jesus, who experiences the great and amazing power of God in his life. And I'm here to tell you that there are people all over this world, there are people in our own city, in our own localized area, who want nothing to do with God, but they see the power of God in their lives every day. And that is why the gospel is necessary. We need to reach others 
with this message. We need to show them who Jesus is. Because those who have experienced these things, and all of us have, are without excuse before our great and holy and powerful God. So let's look at the passage before us today. Just see two major sections here. In the first nine verses of this passage, you see a gracious healing that takes place. John says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This event in Jesus' life takes place after an unspecified amount of time after Jesus' ministry in Galilee. When we were in John chapter 4 a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus in the area of Galilee, ministering in the area of Cana specifically, healing a nobleman's son. That's the only um, thing that John records from that time, is, is how Jesus healed that nobleman's son from afar. Now, John has turned his attention back to Jesus' trip to Jerusalem. And as I've told you before and noted again, though Jerusalem is in the south, you always go up to Jerusalem because of its elevation within the country, and, and it's, it's the place where people go to worship God. John notes that why Jesus returned here is because there is a feast of the Jews. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of discussion. A lot of, a lot of good people have spent a lot of good time trying to figure out um, what feast this is. Most likely, this is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Pentecost. But I'm just going to tell you, most of them come to this conclusion. It's really not that important which feast Jesus is going to, because if it was, John would have told us. John is simply relating to us that there is one of these feasts, like the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Pentecost, that Jews were expected to come, these Jewish men were expected to come to Jerusalem to observe. Therefore, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. That's part of God's plan, and he will be ministering in that area. He has come to observe the feast. And in Jerusalem, we see then this shift that begins to take place in Jesus' ministry because his actions performed here, and over the next few chapters, will begin to divide his followers and will begin to divide others that his life touches. From this instance and others like it, there are a couple of things, three things really you'll observe here. You'll observe opposition, op, sorry, opposition, desertion, and loyalty in the life of Jesus and the life of those who are around him. Because here's the thing. Neutrality in the realm of Jesus and his acts is an impossibility. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. You either follow Jesus or you don't. There's no middle ground. You either accept him or you reject him. And man's rules and man's laws hold no power over the Son of God. Jesus will make that very clear. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, we observe in verse 2 where it is that he is going. It says, now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. As Jesus enters here, it's an astounding thing to think about where he goes. He goes to an area which is located in the northeastern part of Jerusalem near what is called the Sheep Gate. You find the Sheep Gate in Nehemiah when, when, it, when they're recording there about how Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And the Sheep Gate is called such because it's a little opening in the wall there near the temple in the northeast section. And, and you know what they would bring through that little opening? Sheep. Oh, you guys are good. Okay, you are off to a good start. And they would bring the sheep in for what purpose? To sacrifice them in the temple. And there, in that area, is a little place that's called Bethesda. The, the, the gospel here tells us uh, it is, it is a, a pool. 
That name Bethesda likely means house of outpouring. Now, excavations and other historical sources about this tell us that it isn't just one pool, but probably this is two pools, and they lay north and south of one another there in the city. And, as John records, there were five porches or five covered colonnades there in that area. And what you find as, you, as, as we've done excavations and seen things over the years, that these five porches, four of them were around the outside of these pools, and one of them was actually in the middle, dividing those two pools. And, and filling this area are all manner of those who are suffering. Did you read there who was there? The sick, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Let's be honest, this must have been a most miserable place to be. If you don't believe me, think about this. Have you ever spent time in an emergency room? When our daughter was really little, one She fell out of a chair at an ice cream shop and split her head open. That's a great parenting moment, by the way. It's just, I was in charge of watching her, okay? Just let me be very clear. My wife was not there, okay? And so we naturally had to scoop her up, that's my sister and I and and Caleb, and get her in the car and take her to the emergency room because she needed stitches. And that was one of my first experiences in an emergency room, and that experience has never left me. I wish it would. Um, one, you know, you have your own child who is, who is bleeding. And, but you walk into an emergency room, especially in an area where I used to live, in the area of Atlanta. There are a lot of people in there. And they have a lot of ailments. And they're making a lot of noises. You know, sometimes there's moaning, there's groaning, there's screaming. There's, it's not a very pleasant place to be. I don't particularly like hospitals. And I don't particularly like emergency rooms. It does not keep me from coming to visit you, by the way. Okay, I just want to make that very clear. I still want you to call me. Okay, I like coming to see you. Um, but that, that, that's an experience that that I don't really like to repeat. You know, if I can help it with my own family, don't like to go in there and 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 see all of that because it, it's kind of a it's it's sad. It pulls on you. It also it, it just stirs within you your heart. And, and, and so we see here where Jesus went to spend his time. He didn't go to the house of the elite religious leaders of Israel. He didn't go to the synagogues to gather, or, or the temple to gather with them. He didn't go to where all these, you know where he went? He went to the people who were hurting. He went to the people who were needy. He went to the people who just like everybody else needed him. He went to places where others of his stature would not dare to go. Fearing religious ramifications such as uncleanness, most would avoid these sick and weak people. Jesus would go to them, bringing his message of hope and the power of God. It's a challenge to us, by the way. This isn't the main point of the message, but a little point of application. We need to find people in life who don't look just like us. The church isn't the frozen chosen. It isn't us four and no more. The church isn't a museum. The church is a hospital. And we are the ones who have the message of hope. So you know what we need to do? We need to go and find people who need the gospel, and wrap our arms around them, and we need to embrace them and develop a relationship with them and share with them the message of the hope of Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus does this, just that. He brings the message of himself. And it is here that Jesus will minister to a specific man chosen in God's gracious plan. But before we see that, I want to take just a minute, now that we've seen the, the setting of the story, and I want to take a side note here. Look at um, the rest of verse 3 into verse 4. It says um, that who, uh, I'm sorry, verse, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. I want to take a minute here and and note something here in the text before you. This passage makes an incredible case for the value of a good study Bible. Um, I don't know if you have one with you or if you have a Bible with you with good notes, but if you do, you might see a note here. Anybody out there have a little note on these verses? Okay. The second part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are not present in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible, what we would consider the most reliable manuscripts of the Word of God. The information that's found here in the second part of verse 3 and in verse 4, you say, well, how did it get there if it's not in those? This is what what would happen. Um, This was most likely a scribal marginal note to help the readers to understand the context of what's going on here. Obviously, things change over the years. Some of these things get lost. And so some people who understood these things and why people were laying around this pool and what they were doing, they would write in the margin of the text, these scribes, why people were laying around the pool and what they were expecting to happen. And so over the years, guess what happens? Those marginal texts by scribes get moved into the text of the scriptures. And so now they become part of what you have is verse 3 and, and verse 4. Now, in verse 7, you have an allusion to the information that's found in verses 3 and 4. Verse 7 is, is in the earliest and most reliable manuscript. So you can understand then why those scribes were inserting that note to help us understand the context of everything that's going on there. Now, I would just tell you <clears throat> that that truth that, that, that we know that those things became part of the scriptures over the years, do not challenge or undermine our view of scripture's origins and inerrancy. In fact, I would tell you this, the fact that we have older manuscripts to look at and say, this is how this came about, is proof of God's preservation of scripture, that we can still understand these things. And in fact, if you study church history, you would find an early church father, his name is Tertullian, And he lived in the late 2nd and early 3rd century, and he himself referred to the the marginal notes that are are referenced here. So even in his day, which was just a a hundred, couple hundred, not even a couple hundred years after this was recorded, he already knew about these marginal notes and their their place in the text. So there's no challenge to the integrity of the Word of God. But I think it's important for us to understand where those things came from and how we got them. It helps us grasp Obviously, what's going on here, these contextual notes are very helpful. So, let's discuss them. Why did all manner of people with infirmities and ailments gather here? Well, there was a commonly held belief, or as some authors have said, perhaps it was better said a a superstition about this place. It was believed that the waters, at times, were stirred up by an angel. And the belief was that whoever reached the water first would be healed of whatever disease that he had. Now, I'm just going to tell you, we have no substance or proof of this claim. What's very likely is that there's a spring that feeds this pool. And every once in a while, there would be a disturbance from that spring, and it would, it would, it would disturb the water. 
And I'll just go tell you, it's, it's very likely that there were people who entered this pool who then recovered of whatever they had. It doesn't mean that it was connected. Because people recover from things all the time. God does amazing works in our lives. I believe that this is not, this is definitely does not fit God's pattern of doing things. God is not a first come, first serve God. God is not a, well, you missed your chance, God, in this life. We understand that once we pass from this life, all chances to be right with God are gone. We have, we have, we have settled our eternity through what we believe or don't believe about God. But in this life, God does not say, well, sorry, and better luck next time. Because that's really what this is. If you didn't make it, well, hope you can next time. God calls for all who would receive him to come unto him. But with this context in mind, let us continue to see what Jesus does this day. He gives to this man a superior offer. Verse 5, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? So among the sufferers at Bethesda, we meet one in particular, and we learn right away this man has been a sufferer for, for many years. He has had an infirmity, or what we could really say he's been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know what his specific condition was, but what we do know from what we read later on, whatever it was had kept him from being able to move on his own. And so for nearly four decades, this man has suffered. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that he's been here for almost 40 years. It's possible he's been brought there by others when a disturbance of the water was expected. It's possible he's been there for many years. But what we do know is to this man comes an offer of God's incredible grace in his life. Jesus, who is God incarnate, knows this man and his condition. Do you see what John said about that right there? Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. He's not talking about that he went up and surveyed a bunch of people and said, how long have you been here? Jesus is God. He looked at that man and he knew exactly what that man had been through. He knew everything about that man's life. He knows his condition, he knows his suffering, he knows his heart and his needs, and in an incredible act of grace, he selects this man out of all of those people who are gathered there. Bethesda is full of people in need of help, but Jesus chose this man on this day, and there was nothing that this man did to make him stand out. It was an act of God's grace that moved Jesus with compassion to come to him. And we see in Jesus' question, this superior offer he makes this man, he says very simply to this man, do you want to be made well? What an incredibly interesting, if not at the beginning, uh, at least at the outset, an odd question, right? We may think, well, of course he wanted to be cured. That's why he's here. But Jesus is seeking to draw this man to himself. He's not asking, do you want me to carry you to the pool? He's asking, do you want true, genuine healing? Jesus offers to all those who come to him a healing of the soul, salvation in himself. And he communicates with this question his deep concern and compassion on this man. And just as much as this man is loved and known by Jesus Christ, so are we today. If you think that no one in this life understands your struggles, Jesus does. If you think that no one sees and cares for you, Jesus does. If you want to know who loves you with an everlasting love, Jesus does. And he calls you to trust in him. He calls 
for this man's answer, and we see what transpires here. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. The answer this man gives isn't a very positive answer. He doesn't see the healing that's being offered by Jesus. What does he see? He sees the continued problem that he's experienced year after year after year, time after time after time. I mean, for 38 years he's been in this condition. And repeated failings to be the first in the water have stolen his hope of ever being healed. Imagine being that man, whatever point it was in his life, that he came to the pool of Bethesda thinking, this is where I'm going to be made well. This is what's going to cure me. And maybe the first time that he saw the water stirred up and there was a great commotion. Someone got in the pool before him. If that happened to you, you'd think, well, you know, we'll get him next time. How many times before you get to this position? Time after time after time, he's watched people get in the water. And he believes that's going to heal me. And so the answer you have here isn't some overflowing response of faith. Because he saw himself as unable to be healed. Because in his experience, he never met the qualification. You had to be first in the water. You can almost hear in this verse the grumblings of an old man who has been disappointed time and again and now has been asked in his mind a stupid question. Well, I mean, of course I want to be healed, but I can't get in the water. He sees his case as hopeless and impossible. He doesn't realize that standing before him is the sovereign God. Jesus is seeking to change this man's perspective and call for faith in himself. And the man, not knowing who Jesus is, does not even seem to show interest in these things. But this will not change Jesus' willingness to show him God's grace and power. And we see in the rest of this point the sovereign act of God. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed And walked. Interesting, right? That Jesus calls for him for an answer of faith and trust. And the man gives him the most faithless reply. But that does not stop him from working in this man's life. He displays his sovereign power over all things through three authoritative commands. Did you catch all three of those commands? He tells this man to get up, to rise, to take up his bed... And to walk. Which we know from what we've read, this is not something this man could have done before. He's been an invalid for 38 years. And even if there was a surgery that would have cured his problem, he would not have been expected to have the strength and ability to walk on his own, much less carry his bed with him. I mean, how many of you have ever experienced a time where you need a surgery and you go to the hospital and they say, okay, now don't don't get up, right? And don't, don't lift anything over a gallon of milk. But that's not what happens to this man. This is the power of God displayed in Jesus. Jesus' word is all that is needed to heal this man. Not just heal him, but but understand, he is creating in this man the means by which he would obey these commands. Muscles that would have atrophied throughout his life have been restored. Patterns of walking forgotten by the body are relearned. You understand, if you don't walk for a while, you have to train yourself to walk again. I don't think I've ever used my dad in a sermon illustration, so here we go. When my dad was a kid, probably about five years old, he got backed over with, with a car. He was out playing in somebody's back 
backed into him. And he was, he was laid up, he walked for time, and when he was well he had, he told me when he was five years old, he had to learn to walk again. He literally had to learn to teach his body how to walk. And a man of this condition for 38 years who hadn't been able to walk, you wouldn't expect a guy just to get up and walk, much less pick up his little cot and carry it with him. But the ability to hold himself up and carry him an item with him are present once again, and he needed no physical therapy. All because why? Because Jesus commanded it to be so. Because who is John showing that Jesus is? Jesus is the Son of God. He is God himself. Just as Jesus, as God, spoke the world into existence, he gave this man his strength and his abilities, and we see what happens. There is no waiting period, but John says here, immediately this man rose, took up his bed, and walked. He is no longer plagued by his infirmity. He no longer needs to wait around seeking help through some superstitious hope of healing. He had been disappointed by his inability to find healing through this method in the past. But now he has experienced true help and true healing in Jesus. That's the same of our lives. You can try everything there is in this life to make you feel better or to find rest. But the only hope is in Jesus. You can try good things, you can try giving money, you can try relationships, you can try religion, but Jesus Christ is the only answer. And just as that man found the only answer, so too can we today. And though he did not understand or believe in Jesus, he had received God's grace through him anyway. And now he leaves. And as he leaves, we see Go down to the, the end of verse 9. And that day was the Sabbath. This little note there at the end of verse 9, maybe to you at first and to me it seems insignificant, but this actually is a very significant statement. What happens in the, going forward in this chapter hinges on this statement, and that day was the Sabbath. Because this is going to put Jesus at, at, at odds with the religious leaders of Israel. It will cause quite a stir and will begin to divide Jesus and his opponents even greater. And we see that in the rest of this passage. We see that this gracious healing now becomes a grounds for division in the lives of others. We see first the unbearable violation that takes place in verse, starting in verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured... It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them. He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. John has recorded here another sign, the third one that proves that Jesus is God. Jesus has exercised supreme dominion over creation yet again, commanding this man's ailment to be cured and was met with instantaneous results. And we will now see he has done so in a way that claims dominion over man-made rules and regulations. Let's be honest. Jesus could have chosen any day to heal this man by the pool. That man who sat there for 30, well, may not sat there, but he had, been, he had been an invalid for 38 years, who'd sat there for who knows how long, wasn't in, as far as we know, any immediate danger of losing his life. 
Yet Jesus chose that day in God's sovereign plan. And in so doing, he was challenging the religious Jewish hierarchy and confronting their legalistic, superficial practices. You see, the religious leaders of Israel were experts at twisting the law of God to serve their own purposes. They were relentless in burdening the people. As one author said it, they had become experts at substituting their traditions for God's commands. And one of those, a lot of those, revolved around what was known as the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given by God to his people as a day of rest from their normal activities, a day of worship. And and it was patterned after the days of creation, so the Sabbath would have been observed on what we would call Saturday. And rabbinic tradition over the years had hijacked the Sabbath. So beyond what God had said, these rabbinic traditions had coalesced into a list of 39 forbidden categories of work on the Sabbath. Can you guess what one of those 39 is? Carrying goods. And what is this man doing? He's carrying his bed. And so, this man who has just experienced a miracle in his own life is run down by the religious authorities. That is what's referenced here in verse 10 when John refers to the Jews. What he was doing was breaking their precious traditional laws and thus in their mind dishonoring God. Really, he was dishonoring them. And all at once, we see the nasty results of such a legalistic view of God's law. These leaders have no interest in this man's well-being or, that, or what has happened to him. They are only interested in his law-breaking ways. He says here in verse 10, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And then look what he says. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. I mean, this guy... For all that he is, and for all that we'll see that he doesn't believe in, he says something here that should, that should make people stop. He says, hey, yeah, the guy who told me to rise and get up, or made me well, told me to, to take my bed and walk. And in their legalistic, myopic view, they only see he is breaking the traditions of the Sabbath. Who cares if he was healed? They don't care about people, they care about themselves. He is living, walking proof of the power of Jesus, and all they can see is their spurned traditions. God's law was meant to show his people they could have no hope to gain eternity on their own. It was meant to display their brokenness and communicate their need for salvation and true transformation, but instead it had become something entirely different. It had become a system to be followed in order to be looked upon by other people as righteous. And as one author said, The false religion of Judaism, like all false systems, cannot change the inside, so it is left to manipulate the life on the outside. That's all it was. Well, if you just conform to these things, and other people will think you're righteous, and you'll. That's not what the law of God was intended to be. God's law isn't a behavior modification system. God's law is a mirror. And that mirror has a clear message when you look into it. You are a sinner and you need a savior. It communicates to us who God is. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, 
The law of God should bring you to the realization of who you are and what Jesus did for you. And if you are a Christian, the law of God continues to reveal who God is and should become what we seek to follow in our own lives. Understand this, that yes, some of the, or the, the civil part of the law of God, we're not under the, the old covenant and all of those regulations, but the moral law of who God is, what is right and what is wrong, does not change. We still serve the same holy God. And so the moral law of God still has ramifications on our lives today, not in a legalistic sense, but in the sense that we should desire to do these things as God has written them on our hearts, and his spirit lives within us, helping us to live them out. As Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But we are called to live in the way that pleases God with his help. These religious leaders cared nothing for the man's well-being and only about their rules, traditions, and ultimately their position. And we see the effect this system has even had on this man and the failure of his own faith in Jesus. In verse 13, this man, or verse, verse 12, I'm sorry, he, re- he references this unknown benefactor. They want to know. Hey, who is it that told you to take up your bed and walk? See, here's what, here's what they begin to deduce. We have a guy here who's breaking one of these 39 traditions. He's carrying his bed. This little straw and fabric mat, he's carrying it around. Not supposed to do that. And he says, there's another guy going around telling people to do this. And who do they want? Do they want the guy carrying the mat or do they want the guy telling people to carry their mats? They want that guy, right? He's more dangerous because he's telling people to break the laws that we have set forth for the Sabbath. So they say to him, okay, who was it that told you? Or why are you, you know, why? and the man doesn't know. Now, let's back up. Why did this man even come out with this reference to Jesus? Well, one, to, I mean, it's obviously his testimony, but two, what you see here in the text, really, I from what you read here and what you read later on, what Jesus says to him, this man brings out Jesus not just not, not as some testimony of God's power, but as self-defense of himself. Because he stopped by the Sabbath police, right? Hey, you're breaking the Sabbath. Hey, it wasn't me. Somebody else told me to do it. And now he can't name who it is because he doesn't know who Jesus is. He sought to absolve himself of trouble, but And Jesus had come into his life and healed him. But he had not placed any further effort into knowing who Jesus was. And so Jesus, not wishing to create a scene, had slipped away. But the act of this man's healing would not go unnoticed. Why? One, because it was in a place where the sick and suffering were. Think about what John told us what Bethesda was like. All of those sick and suffering people were there. You think somebody noticed when someone actually got healed? Yeah. Second, because it was on the Sabbath. This compassionate, incredible act was met with an incredulous resistance. And in the end, this man will not be the target of the religious leaders. They're going after Jesus, who is telling people to violate these laws in their minds. And this man, he doesn't wish to identify himself with this one. But Jesus will not leave the man without answers. 
and not without a warning for his life. We see lastly here the unveiled truth that Jesus gives to this man in these last couple of verses. In verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Sometime after this incident, Jesus finds this man there in the temple. We don't know if it was the same day or later on. But, under, but, but imagine that. For 38 years, this man hasn't been able to go to the temple to worship God. He, one, he wasn't able to. He was invalid. Two, he may, may very well have then been unclean and unable to worship God according to the laws and the traditions. And it is here that Jesus delivers to him a very sobering warning. He warns this man against further sin in his life. He says, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The implication behind Jesus' statement to this man is that 38 years ago, a specific sin in this man's life led him into this illness that he had experienced. Now, that is not always the case, that we will experience illness and disease because of sin. But the scriptures certainly teach us that that is a possibility because sin has consequences. And sometimes those consequences are felt more physically in our lives. Now we see that in our world today, very practically, as many are ravaged ravaged by venerable disease and poor health because of things such as promiscuity or substance abuse. But God also may allow sickness and disease into the life of another because of other actions. You read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, that there were brothers and sisters in Christ in Corinth who had fallen to illness and to death because of their sin. Now, I hasten to tell you again, that does not mean that every sick person and every diseased person is, is, is so because of their personal sin. Now, we understand that sickness and illness is in the world because of sin. But it doesn't mean that personal sin is always connected to those things. Indeed, in John chapter 9, I, I love reading all of these chapters. I can't wait to get to John chapter 9. Okay? In John chapter 9, you're going to meet a guy who has a, a really major illness. And Jesus says it's not because of sin. It's because of the glory of God in his life. That, he may, that, the glory, that God may be glorified in his life. But God does use these things on occasion to get our attention. This fact that a sin in this man's life caused 38 years of affliction magnifies grace, the grace of God all the more. Think about this for a minute. Here's this man who, as far as we know, has not repented of this sin. Yet Jesus showed him incredible grace in healing him of this infirmity. And I would let that, if I were you, encourage my heart. God's grace is greater. Greater than what? Yes. If God is drawing you to himself, there is nothing that you have done that he cannot forgive. God can take anyone, anywhere, who is fighting any sin and make them new. He can make you like himself and be your Lord. That is the hope of the gospel. But the man in this account before us needs a dire warning. Jesus speaks to this man. He references past, and then he warns him for the future. 
He says that he should cease from sinning, that he may not suffer something worse. What an incredible thing. Something worse than 38 years of infirmity and affliction. What is Jesus speaking of? Jesus is speaking of eternal judgment in hell, separated from God. John's gospel is written for this purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here we have a confrontation of this belief once again. Jesus is calling for this man to repent from his sin. It is an impossibility. We read that. It says, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. It's an impossibility to think this man would leave, this day, leave the temple that day and never sin again. We wish that were true. But we know it won't, be, it won't be possible. Because we cannot do that in and of ourselves. We need, instead, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account in order to be accepted by God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit living within us to free us from our slavery to sin. This requires belief in Jesus, and that belief requires us to turn from our sin and come to him completely. It means to abandon ourselves. It means to place our complete trust in him. It means to embrace the cost of discipleship, and that's what Jesus is calling this man to do. He's calling him to abandon the unbelief in himself and to instead believe in who he is. And it's not that that man will leave, even if he follows Jesus Christ and never sin again. It's that he will be accepted by God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he then will have the ability to do what is right and say no to sin. And have the, 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 the uh, security of a relationship with God that even if he does sin, he knows that his sins are forgiven. This man had experienced the grace of God through Jesus in his life, but that did not create faith in him. He still had to make a choice where to place his belief and his trust. And if he did not trust in Jesus, his fate would be worse than it had been for the past 38 years. And with that, Jesus departs. And this is what we learn in verse 15. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He leaves the temple, searches out those Jewish leaders, wishing to inform them about what he has learned. This really is not him trying to exalt Jesus, but really is another act of him seeking to clear his name with the religious leaders. He is choosing his side. Listen, you don't have to have more than a couple brain cells to rub together to understand if he went and told these religious leaders what was going to happen. He knew exactly what he was doing. They were looking for this guy. I know who your guy is. And though he is focused in his statement on the healing and not the breaking of the law as the religious leaders were, he still chooses to go to them over placing faith in Jesus. Two authors said, a couple authors said some things I thought were very insightful. One was, not everyone accepts merciful acts with gratitude. And the other one said, it is possible to experience an exciting miracle and still not be saved and go to heaven. And that's so true in the life of this man. This man serves as a warning to us that whether you acknowledge God or not, you have experienced his grace in your life. 
This is evidenced by the life you lived. It is evidenced by the very fact that you woke up today and you could spend your entire life seeking a sign or a miracle, but that sign or miracle will not create in you faith. Jesus calls for your choice to place your faith and trust in him. He calls for you to come to him, to believe in him, to follow him, and if you do not, an eternity in hell awaits you and that is your choice. But he instead calls for us to live consumed with God in Christ because belief in Jesus transforms your life. And the grace of God calls to each of us. And the healing of your soul through faith in Jesus is the greatest thing that can ever happen to you. Jesus' power is not limited by man's rules, is not relegated to only those who believe and calls for our trust and obedience The message of Jesus calls for your response. You either believe him or you don't. Belief in Jesus is not acknowledging that he exists. It is not thinking good thoughts about him. It is not even showing up in church. Belief is a conscious decision to place your trust in him as Savior and declare him the Lord of your life. God has shown his grace on you. Wherever you are in life right now and whatever you experience, it is only because of God. And here's the thing. It is a common experience amongst mankind to look at all of the bad things that we experience in life and pin those on God. And everything good that happens to us, we take credit for. You ever notice that? Maybe, you, maybe you've done it. Maybe you've seen others who've done it. In reality, our sinfulness brings consequences into our lives and it is because of God's mercy and grace that you continue to have the opportunity to respond to him. Like the man in the account today, you need faith in Jesus. You need his life-changing power to save you from sin and to give you the freedom to live for him. Will you come to him today? Will you give him your trust and your life? And if you've made that decision to place your faith in Christ, how does that affect your life every day? Because here's the thing. God has promised victory over sin. God has promised the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and he's promised to do his work until the day we enter eternity. So what is God doing in your heart right now? The bigger question is, do you hold him as the Lord of your life? Here's the thing. By nature, we are all controllers. We want to control every part of our lives. And so, within our little sphere of influence, we will seek in our flesh to set up our own little kingdom. And we will put in our kingdom all of the things that we can control, all of life circumstances, all of the people that we can manipulate, all of this and that and the job and this, and we put it all here and we say, I'm in charge. God says, no, you're not. I am the sovereign God. And if you continue in unbelief to stamp your foot and declare that you are the king, my friend, one day you will be gravely mistaken. I don't say that. In anything but love, Jesus is the king. And he calls for your trust. But you know what? Even in our Christian lives, we still sometimes give back in to that, well, this is my, no it's not. 
It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. And what God calls for us to do, we need to do. You and I, as Christians, are called to submit our lives to Jesus Christ. The law of God isn't a burden, but the reflection of your holy God. So you should see change in your life as a Christian, not because you're trying to fit into some mold of what does a good Christian look like, but because God is doing his ongoing work in you. And when you push away conviction of sin, it should bother you. And if you say, well, I know God, and I just don't ever feel convicted about sin, and if I do, I don't feel bad about it. Friend, you, and I, you, you need some serious time of reflection with the Word of God. Because God convicts and changes his own. We need to take a look at our relationships, our personal lives, our habits, and compare them against God. What a dangerous and awful thing it is to experience the grace of God and walk away unchanged as this man did because God's grace transforms lives. As we stand here on the precipice of a brand new year, may it be a year that you live in the grace of God. May it be a year where God does amazing things in your life. And I'm going to tell you right now, there are hard things that are going to happen this year. You are going to hear uncomfortable things in your life. You're going to be convicted if you're a follower of God by the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Commit now to whatever God shows you. That's what I'm going to do with his help and his power. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can experience his grace today. You can know him as your personal Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for the word of God and its power to change our lives. We thank you for allowing us to be here today to hear these glorious truths. And God, I pray that today you would have the freedom to do your work in our hearts. You would take your word, you would plant it deep in our hearts and lives, you would convict us of our sin, you would show us the Savior. Lord, I pray for one who hears the things that we've talked about today. pray that you would work in their hearts if they don't know you. You would draw them to yourself. You would break up whatever it is in their life that they're holding on to they think will, will gain them eternity. Maybe it's an experience. Maybe it's a profession of faith that meant nothing. Maybe it's religion. Maybe it's works. Lord, would you show them how worthless these things are and, and how much they need a personal relationship with you. May you show them your grace. Lord, I pray today for Christians that you would meet us with your power today. That you would help us to live for you. That you would help us to honor you and glorify you. That you would truly mold us and make us. Lord, that's not always comfortable, that's not always easy. We ask that you would help us to submit to these things. And we ask that we would just be trophies of your grace. And that our lives would reflect you and honor you and glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.